Hey guys, welcome back and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of So Have You Seen. My name is Noel Cruz and welcome to episode four. Wow, man, I can't believe we're four episodes in already. This is good times. I'm really enjoying uh, taking the time to do this with you guys. Uh, I'm even more grateful that you're you're taking time from your busy day to listen and to support the podcast. So I want to thank you very much for that. I hope you've enjoyed the previous three episodes. Uh, it's It's been a learning curve for me. Uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, getting to talk about the things that I love and enjoy and sharing it with people who also appreciate the genre of superhero films and sci-fi and comics and just that entire medium. I hope you had a great week. I hope you're enjoying your weekend. Um, feels a little cooler in New York City today, which is great. It's kind of a precursor that September is just around the corner and that fall is coming in, which is my favorite time of year. You have nice crisp weather, you have the foliage, you have, you know, everything from apple picking to pumpkin picking to wearing your light jackets and sweaters and hoodies and your favorite boots. Uh, The best holiday ever, Halloween, happens in October and my birthday. So, good times. I'm looking forward uh, to the fall season, man. I really am. That being said, I am excited because this is the episode that we are going to dedicate to the Star Wars prequels. Last episode, we went over the original trilogy. I touched on uh, what George Lucas did to bring his vision to light. I have a huge love and admiration and affection for the Star Wars universe. Um, It had a very profound impact on me as a kid, seeing something that just magnificent and, you know, majestic and incredible. It, it, It really, really did leave an impact. Everything from the, the the brilliant score of John Williams to the costumes to James Earl Jones powerful voices Darth Vader to the lightsaber battles to to just about everything to the theme to the story to the beautiful princess who was you know not necessarily a damsel in distress she was a strong-willed young girl it was everything a boy at my age needed to see. It made my world a better place as a kid. It fed my imagination. And this is why I'm talking about it so many years later. So, discussing the original trilogy, we left off with Return of the Jedi, which is the last film in those three parts. Return of the Jedi kind of wrapped everything up beautifully for the original trilogy. But it left a lot of questions unanswered because now you saw the fall of the Empire, Luke Skywalker is a Jedi, you know, everything looks hopeful. So, you know, as a fan, you're like, okay, but what happens now? You know, like, what? who else is there? Like, what happens to Luke? You know, what happens to Han Solo? So it left a lot of questions unanswered. During the filming of Empire Strikes Back, and due to the success of the first film, George Lucas spoke to 20th Century Fox and he made it very clear to them that this was a nine-story nine arc that he was hoping to complete. He wanted to make all nine films. 
Now, back then, unlike now, you know, they didn't really sign for that many films. You would go on a film-by-film basis. Or if it was projected that the film you were releasing had potentially high numbers, then some studios were brave enough to back a sequel. So doing nine films was unheard of back in the 70s and 80s and even 90s. So Lucas just kind of put the groundwork. He said, listen, if this continues, I want to make all nine films. Return of the Jedi was released. It was critically praised. It made a ton of money. So 20th Century Fox kind of left it with that, yeah, in the meantime, we're going to hold the rights to Star Wars. When you're ready, come back and we'll move forward. This was 1983. In 1992, George Lucas had announced that he wanted to proceed with the prequel trilogy because technology had caught up with a lot of his vision, a lot of what he wanted to do. Um, Again, the man surrounded himself with brilliant people and created Industrial Light and Magic, which was a special effects house that did about 90% of the special effects in motion pictures from the 1970s even until present day. Uh, Now you have a couple of other uh, special effects houses that do very well, but Industrial Light and Magic was it. They're responsible for everything from the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park to Terminator to Terminator 2 to Jaws to E.T., so again, this is all George Lucas's hand and the company and the studio that he helped create in terms of special effects. That art that he created with special effects was advancing in such a way that it showed him that he was going to be able to do a lot more to fulfill his vision. And that's kind of what ignited that interest in let's go back and now tell the story of Anakin Skywalker. So, I mean, if you think about it, if the special effects didn't advance the way they did with technology, we probably never would have seen the prequel trilogy and then the final trilogy. But he was really excited about it, and he decided kind of as a precursor, not necessarily maybe a precursor, but kind of as a tester, kind of like to test the waters, he decided that he was going to use the technology available in 1992 to remaster the original trilogy. Now, these films were older. They were, they were what? They were about 10, they were coming to be about 10 years old at that time. Nothing was really shot digital at that point. Everything was on film. So George Lucas decided to get financing to clean up the first trilogy, the original trilogy, clean up the film, make the audio digital, the soundtrack digital, make the sound effects digital, just make it look better so it wasn't dated. Then he wanted to re-release them in theaters. Now, around this time, theaters were getting digital projectors. So a digital film projected onto a digital projector looked a lot more seamless. It looked really beautiful. And this also gave George Lucas the opportunity to kind of fill out the galaxy he had created, because if you look at these original films, they were shot in deserts, so it's very vast. You're supposedly on a on a sand planet, but there's nothing there other than the actors that you see. So with technology, he was able to kind of make 
little cities or show animals walking around or show, you know, digitally imposed groups of people in the background, make a spaceport. So it gave it life. And he kind of elaborated on that because in the first film, as I mentioned before in the previous podcast, you go from from space to a desert planet to space to it's over or to a, to a to a starship. So there's really no sense of a big galaxy. You're captivated by what's going on in the film, but Lucas never got to to kind of give that presence that it's the entire galaxy that's involved in this story. So with the technology, he was able to do that with the first three films, and they look beautiful. He re-released them in the theaters in 1997, I believe about four months apart, four or five months apart. So a whole new generation could kind of go back and experience it in the theater. I remember I went, I saw them, I think two or three times each with a group of my friends, and it was just great. They looked so much better. Certain things George Lucas added were really good. Other things he added were unnecessary. Other things were more just kind of him nitpicking as a director. But one of the standout things I do remember uh, from the original Star Wars film that he changed was a scene that he originally deleted, that he did not use because he thought it would help pacing and also because he would never get to see this character on film the way he had hoped, and that character is Jabba the Hutt. So in Star Wars, there was a scene where Han Solo meets Jabba the Hutt. Jabba the Hutt is an intergalactic gangster. Han Solo was supposed to smuggle something for him, which he did not do because he was kind of like pulled over by, by the... Uh, by the Empire, and he dropped the cargo that he had, which belonged to Jabba the Hutt. Therefore, Jabba the Hutt put a bounty on his head, and that's kind of where their story leads. It leads all the way into Return of the Jedi. But I thought this was a very interesting dynamic because you get to see this all the way finally in the first film. Problem at hand was that Jabba the Hutt wasn't the slug, grotesque creature we saw in Return of the Jedi. He was actually a man. He was an actor. So the dialogue that was exchanged back and forth was between two men. George Lucas didn't want it that way. He wanted Han Solo to speak to the Jabba the Hutt we now knew in Return of the Jedi. So the brilliant people at Industrial Light and Magic actually created, through CGI, the Jabba the Hutt version that we know over, superimposed over, the actor who played him. So kind of as a reference, they had the actor who worked in Return of the Jedi who voiced Jabba the Hutt in, what is it, Hutties, the language that he speaks, that, that they brought him back to record lines because the actor had actual dialogue that him and Harrison Ford were feeding off each other. So it was really very well done. The initial transition of Jabba as a digital creature over the actor, was very plain. It looked okay, but he didn't really resemble the Return of the Jedi version. He looked a little a little sleeker, even a little slimmer. He just looked like an overgrown slug. But it, again, it was still cool because it explained to you the dynamic between Han and Chewbacca, um, I'm sorry, Han and Jabba the Hutt. 
as the years progressed, George Lucas re-released these movies on DVD, and then he released it on Blu-ray, and then he released it on uh, digital download. And every time he re-released them, he would clean them up over and over again. Now he had, the man has unlimited capital. He wanted to make sure that these were, these films were released as he envisioned them. He wanted them to look as good as possible. So if you see A New Hope now, that job of the hut in that scene looks a lot like the Return of the Jedi version. So that's what the technology was able to do then. He didn't make major changes to Empire Strikes Back nor to Return of the Jedi. Like one of the coolest things in Return of the Jedi he did is the little Ewok creatures. They had kind of like a blank stare. You know, they just because it's it's a costume, it's a helmet that the dwarves uh, wore who were playing the Ewoks. But again, it's it's like a blank expression. If you look at the digital downloads now, the little Ewoks actually blink, they react, and when they speak, their mouths move a little more. So it's these little tweaks and polishes that George Lucas has done throughout the years that makes the film... All of these films stand the test of time. They look seamless as none of them really have an age reference. If you didn't know the original trilogy was released in the 70s and you just saw it straight through, they did it so well that you can tell that it's all pretty consistent within a matter of maybe 10 years or so, depending how it progresses the story. But the prequels, the re-release of the original trilogy cleaned up with additional footage was huge. Me personally, I think that was the tactic to help finance the new prequels, the budget for it. One of my first frustrations is that I had to stand in line for almost 12 hours. 12 hours. I got there at one o'clock in the afternoon. The line was around the block and this was at the Zigfield Theater. The Zigfield Theater was like the theater in New York City. It was massive. It was just one auditorium. They showed one movie. That was it. But it was like, it was an experience. It's like, that's why you go to the movies. And I remember I got there at one o'clock. The tickets didn't go on sale till three. I wanted to get my place in line. So I was good with being ready to commit at least four hours of just waiting in line. No problem. The, the internet had just hit the scene, so there weren't really, you know, like uh, AMC stubs or, you know, anything where you could buy tickets online. So you had to stand in line. Movie phone could not handle the volume of people wanting to purchase the tickets for episode one. By the time I got from my place in line to the box office window to purchase my ticket, it was 1226 in the morning. I had been online for almost 12 and a half hours to get these tickets. If there is anyone listening to this podcast who was purchasing tickets for episode one and can testify to this, please do send me an email, <laughs> comment on my uh, my Instagram account for So Have You Seen. Just let us know because I, I mean... You had some really unhappy Star Wars fans standing on that line for so long. Like, people were were already writing petitions. It it was getting ugly out there for a second. Uh, 
But ultimately, everybody got the tickets that they wanted. Good to go. Opening day, which I believe was May 19th of 1999. It was incredible. There was an energy online. There were people dressed up, you know, the love for Star Wars, man, and and the crazy fans. And I say crazy in a good way because you got some devoted fans out there. You had people dressed up as Darth Maul. You had people dressed up as young Obi-Wan. It was it was a fever. You know, it was, it was good times. You know, we made it into the theater. We sat down. The last time we saw anything Star Wars related was in 1983. That was the last time. This is 1999. So the theater goes dark. People start cheering. You hear the drums for the 20th Century Fox logo, the fanfare. Boom, 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 people are starting to lose their mind, clapping, cheering, whistling, and you see the the Lucasfilm Limited logo, and people start cheering louder, and you know, and you hear the screen goes black. You could hear a mouse burp between that two seconds that the screen went black, blank. And the word Star Wars just came out of the screen. Because when those words came out and that scroll that said Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, came up, you couldn't hear anything. You couldn't hear yourself scream. People were clapping and cheering and going bananas. And it was a real kind of, it was living proof of the love for this franchise. So the movie starts, people are excited, and you know the cast had already been set, again, because this was kind of like the dawn of the internet, we didn't have all the information we had now. There were very few pictures released of like a young Obi-Wan played by Ewan McGregor, Qui-Gon Jinn played by Liam Neeson, uh, Jake Lloyd who played little Anakin Skywalker who would grow up to become Darth Vader, You know, there wasn't really a lot. So people were really captivated by what was going on on screen. You know, characters show up. C-3PO shows up. You know, people clap for him. Young Obi-Wan shows up. People clap for him. You know, there is a phenomenal racing scene. Again, a tribute to George Lucas's love for cars and and racing cars and motorcycles and things like that with a, a pod chase scene throughout the planet which is fantastic. Whether you're into racing or not, it's just fantastic. The special effects that were used, the sound, if you have a sound system or a sound bar that you really want to appreciate, put on the pod race from episode one and you can thank me later because the sound is just outstanding. So it goes from that and then it introduces one of the most beautiful villains I have ever seen in the Star Wars universe, Darth Maul. I mean, he he left everybody speechless whenever he didn't have a lot of time on screen, which was my also another kind of another factor into why I didn't, you know, really love the Phantom Menace. That and Jar Jar Binks, but whatever, leave Jar Jar alone, man. He's taken enough abuse. And Jar Jar Binks was there for the kids. So if he really bothers you that much, don't watch the movie. But Darth Maul, when he showed up on screen, it's like the air left the room. It was just like, <gasps> people just looked, and he was ferocious. 
And he was, I mean, he did a lot more than Darth Vader did. He would kick, and he, like he knew, he knew martial arts, and he had a double-edged lightsaber, and he spun it around over his back, over his arms. I mean, this guy was an absolute legitimate threat, legitimate threat that anyone had ever seen in the Star Wars universe. Because as as great as Darth Vader was, he was just very imposing. You know, and he would choke people out just by looking at them. I mean, it's an awesome trick. It's scary. You're like, man, I don't want to mess with that, dude. But it's not really imposing. Well, better said, it's just imposing. And you're like, okay, I'm going to keep my distance from him. But Darth Maul was a full-on Sith warrior. And he was handling two Jedis like they were nothing. Darth Maul was played by Ray Park, who's a martial artist. He had done a couple other films after that. Most notably, he played Toad in the very first X-Men movie. Um, Guy was in phenomenal shape. He just looked absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful as Darth Maul. I wasn't crazy about how how quickly they dispatch him in the film. But in the continuing Star Wars universe with the animated TV shows and the films that are coming in with The Mandalorian, it's said they're discussing bringing him back. So I'm excited about that. If there's ever, if there's any character that deserves coming back, it would be Darth Maul. The film does great. Critically, not the strongest appraisal, but it, it does get, you know, um, it, it does get a lot of praise in a sense that, you know, Star Wars is back. Very entertaining, family-friendly, like the original trilogy. They talk about Darth Maul and how great he looked. Um, And it it, it goes off. So it sets up now for Attack of the Clones, which is the second film in your uh, prequel trilogy. Now the dynamic here changes. This film was much better paced. Uh, The first one, The Phantom Menace, kind of lagged a little bit, but it had to build on a story. This one, the action kind of takes off from jump. Uh, You get to see an older Anakin Skywalker. You see him becoming, you know, a man. Ewan McGregor is now Obi-Wan. He's a little older. He's sporting a beard. So he's kind of taking that transition into the Obi-Wan that we will know in in the original trilogy. Hayden Christensen was not necessarily, would have been my first choice. Uh, he wasn't a seasoned actor. He was very young. And in all fairness, dialogue is not George Lucas's strong suit. He wrote the first two films, I believe, which were uh, The Phantom Menace and Now Attack of the Clones. And his writing is just, it can be very wooden, very basic, very simple. There's not a, there's not really a lot of depth to his dialogue. So it could be, you know, difficult to deliver if you're not a seasoned actor. And that's something I think that Hayden Christensen kind of had as a, as a handicap through no fault of his own. He had a great look. He was totally, to me at least, he was totally believable as what Darth Vader looked like as a young man. Like this young man could one day, you know, lose himself to the darkness and be Darth Vader. So that he had. Um, terrible dialogue aside, he looked great when he fought side by side with Obi-Wan. It was fantastic. We had the introduction of Jango Fett, who was the precursor to Boba Fett, who's actually Boba Fett's father. So that was very interesting. 
the special effects and the sound was great. You get to see Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, you get to see his character, who is like Yoda's right-hand man. You get to see him use a lightsaber. And you get to see the Jedis have a foot-on fight. So you're like, wow. All the things we heard about in the original trilogy we're seeing now. They also introduced a, a new villain by the name of Count Dooku, who's played by the legendary Christopher Lee. I have a lot of love for Christopher Lee, British actor who is, I guess, primarily known for more modern films like The Lord of the Rings. Uh, he played Sauron. He played the white wizard, the evil white wizard. Uh, and the man is just, I mean, in terms of science fiction films, he is he is a trophy, man. He is, that man is, is to be appreciated. He was the second Dracula, if I'm not mistaken, on film. So Bela Lugosi, at least in American film, because there was that film Nosferatu with Max Schreck, the old black and white one. Uh, Nosferatu is that creature that's really tall and kind of skinny and slender. And he has those long fingers like that. The very first Dracula film ever made was Nosferatu. Universal then made it with Bela Lugosi. And then in the 1960s, this London film corporation called Hammer Films, they got a hold of the rights to kind of the, the monster movie characters. So they got the rights to Dracula. They got the rights to Frankenstein. They got the rights to The Mummy. They got the rights to Wolfman. So they pumped these films out. And believe it or not, they are not bad. Like, if you're a cinephile or, you know, if, if you really do love movies or if you're, you know, this coming Halloween, you want to see kind of a throwback film or a classic, watch Horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee. And it's beautiful, man. It just has an old school vibe to it. He wasn't necessarily my favorite Dracula, but it was just, it was cool. And then another cool thing about it is that uh, Peter Cushing was also in Horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee. Now, Peter Cushing was Admiral uh, Tarkin, I believe, who was the slender, older gentleman who was always with Darth Vader in A New Hope. He was kind of like Darth Vader's... He was the man Darth Vader had to answer to on the Death Star. And they would actually use... CGI to bring him back in the Rogue One film. Uh, so he was in this, these movies with Christopher Lee. And again, I cannot tell you enough. See some of these films. I mean, they're not all great, but the, the point is that Christopher Lee, he played all of the monsters in these films. So he was Dracula. He His major uh, part was as Dracula. He did about, I think, five or six films as Dracula from the 1960s through the mid-1970s. He also played the Frankenstein monster in the Hammer Horror films in a film called The Curse of Frankenstein, which I thought he looked awesome and creepy as all hell. And then he also played The Mummy. The Mummy was okay, um, but I would say that The Curse of Frankenstein and above all, The Horror of, of Dracula are the ones you want to watch just to see, like, Christopher Lee in his heyday doing his thing. As Count Dooku, 
I thought he was badass. He was very dubious. He didn't look like a Sith. He was he looked like a you know like a intergalactic politician. He was very smooth and very proper and very articulate and very stylish. But he was the right hand man to to the Emperor ultimately. So I thought it was incredibly interesting the way that they superimposed his face onto the stuntman's body who would be the fencer when they did the lightsaber battles that made it look as though Christopher Lee were fighting. So that is really cool. And then, of course, he has that awesome fight with Yoda, which is the first time we see Yoda use a lightsaber. And I do remember I was there on opening day as well. And I will say this, when people saw that little green alien pull out his little green lightsaber. That's what she said. People lost their minds. People were screaming at the top of their lungs. And Yoda is like bouncing off of a ship and jumping up and down. He, I mean, people were going, pardon my French, apeshit when they saw Yoda for the first time ever swinging a lightsaber and then fighting Count Dooku, you know, it, it was, it was awesome. It was again, something as fans that we waited for, for years. Attack of the Clones also showed where Anakin was kind of easily manipulated, not easily manipulated, but he was he could easily be taken by his emotions, by anger, uh, by rage. And in the Star Wars universe, a Jedi does not give in to those feelings. It's That's more of uh, traits that you'll find in a Sith because they use their emotion and their hatred and their anger to give them more power. As a Jedi, you're kind of like a like a monk. You, or you, you just the Force feeds you, and you're grateful for that, and you use those powers for for good. Sith, not so much. The more rage they feel, the more anger they have, the more different type of powers manifest. All of which are more on the hostile side. So you have, you know, Force lightning, or you could choke someone, or you know, that's what giving in to the dark side is, that whole premise of the dark side and the light side of the force. So we get to see now how Anakin gives into that and ultimately why, despite his gifts and despite his brilliance as a pilot and despite his promises as possibly being one of the greatest Jedis ever and and being the prophecy He was prophesized to bring balance to the Force, that he would do away with the dark side. Doesn't really turn out that way. And in this film, we kind of see the jump-off point for him. Attack of the Clones ends in somewhat of a similar light to The Empire Strikes Back. Not as dramatic in the sense of what happens uh, but in kind of a little bit of a cliffhangerish way, uh, I think Empire Strikes Back had much more of a cliffhanger. But this just kind of ends in a way like, wow, you know, the things are not 
in the best of places right now. You know, a war is starting. So that that is kind of where that film ends. It's the start of the Clone Wars. This is what sets everything into motion. Film did much better critically. Uh, again, Lucas was kind of panned for his terrible writing uh, of the characters. But it just looked a lot better. It, it The pacing was a lot better. Um, and the film was definitely stronger than its predecessor in terms of moving the plot forward. But in in essence, that's what it is supposed to do. The middle film forwards the plot, which is why when I get to the final trilogy, I'm going to have a lot of problem with that middle film. And I'm going to talk about it. Trust me. So Attack of the Clones did what it needed to do to bring forth the final film in the prequel trilogy, which is my personal favorite. And what I think is the strongest of the three, which is Revenge of the Sith. So very quickly in the original trilogy, George Lucas wanted to name the third film in the series Revenge of the Jedi, which he then thought about and decided against because it kind of went against what he preached about with the Jedi. They're not about vengeance. They're about peace and they're about justice and they're about harmony in the galaxy. So Revenge of the Jedi would be kind of like a, it would be a disservice to, to the characters. So he decided against it and he went with Return of the Jedi, which I think is a far better title. He did finally get to use the word revenge in this title. And here it made, of course, perfect sense because this is where it kind of all goes to hell. Um, And I mean, story-wise, and I don't mean it in a negative light, but we all knew at the end of this series and everybody knew. It It was a surprise to no one, unlike when Vader revealed who he was to Luke. It was a surprise to no one what was going to happen after these films. So Revenge of the Sith came out in May of 2005. I mean, I just, I remember seeing the film and from open, it was just phenomenal. It it starts with a major space battle. I mean, at that point, it was the biggest thing we'd ever seen. And again, the technology had changed so much that it was seamless. And you could, again, you watch these films as they were released and you see the advancements in technology and it just, it looked beautiful. Now we get to see an older Anakin Skywalker played by Hayden Christensen who looked great. He looked fantastic as you know, the Anakin Skywalker before Darth Vader. You get to see a slightly older Obi-Wan. You get to see their banter. You know, they're like brothers. You see them fighting together and you see that Anakin style has kind of changed. He's a lot more focused. He's a lot more experienced. He looks amazing. And it just, it worked. It really did. I believe that uh, George Lucas reached out to Steven Spielberg 
And Steven Spielberg helped George Lucas kind of conceptualize and visualize the space battles and ultimately the lightsaber fight at the end of the film. And I, I am fairly confident this is the case. Uh, and if it is, then kudos to Steven Spielberg because Revenge of the Sith, probably with the exception of Duel of the Fates from The Phantom Menace, is the best lightsaber battle I've ever seen. And it had to be for many reasons. But with the beginning of this film, it kind of picks up with that George Lucas, what I affectionately call the George Lucas ADD. Because George Lucas, as the films go on, he has this need to make multiple things happen at once. So the films during the middle and the end, particularly towards the end, you have about four things going on. He goes back and forth, back and forth. Here, it wasn't as bad. But it was a theme that kept picking up that even went into the final trilogy that just happened with the last film, The Rise of Skywalker, that came out. Uh, In Phantom Menace is where I found it most annoying because it would kind of interrupt the fight between Darth Maul and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan because then we had to go to space and then we had to go to a palace where there's a fight. So I'm like, dude, just forget about that other stuff. Just focus on the cool guy with the horns and the red face and the two lightsabers. George Lucas still maintains those beats and that rhythm with Revenge of the Sith, but it's still strong. The movie is definitely still strong. We see finally the Emperor reveal himself, uh, which is very interesting. It was kind of cool. I wish it would have been a little different. I thought it was kind of unbelievable. (laughs) But then again, when you're watching a science fiction film, just about 100% of what you're going to watch is unbelievable. I just wish they would have gone about it in a different way. Um, But he finally reveals himself. Anakin, throughout the film, is, is having premonitions of something bad happening. The Emperor playing a dubious character and having his, ultimately, his interest in mind and being a Sith himself. He's drawn to Anakin because of Anakin's power. And that is what he wants. He wants the strongest Jedi, which is Anakin, to seduce him, to to give him kind of false propaganda against the Jedi and to ultimately have him in his control. Circumstances prevail. I don't want to say too much because I do want you guys to see the movie, but circumstances, if you have not already, (laughs) circumstances prevail that Anakin does give in to the dark side. It was a very fantastic way they did it. It was kind of cool. It was a little bit on the shocking side. Um, one major character was lost in that, in that transition, um, who they could possibly bring back one day, or they may not, who knows in in the world of star Wars, all bets are off. And he finally becomes Darth Vader. Now, 
what's cool about it is that Darth Vader was, or at least George Lucas, he originally wanted Darth Vader just to be a man, like Count Dooku. There was never really the the idea that Vader would end up in the suit until Lucas kind of wrote out what was going to happen to him that Vader would ultimately need to be in the suit. So Anakin Skywalker, when you become a Sith, the Emperor named him Darth Vader, which is a translation, I believe, of, of Swedish or, or German for Dark Father. But it happened. You get to see him do terrible things, man. I mean, he, he takes out a school of little, uh, little Jedi younglings Little kids who are who are practicing to be Jedi, he dispatches that little class of Jedi's. He he leads the clones who are ultimately corrupt and were being run by the Emperor to pretty much kill and destroy all Jedi's, just to give them the power they needed to rule the galaxy. The movie proceeds. You see Yoda fight with the Emperor, which is fantastic. This is, again, one of those things that, as a Star Wars fan, you cannot wait to see. And it finally, finally comes to light. And people were just loving it, man. It was like being at a rock concert. I remember when seeing it in the theaters. And lastly, you get to see the fight with Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker. If George Lucas ever deserved credit for anything other than what he created, that fight scene between Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi was something for the ages. As a Star Wars fan, as a fan of films, that is one of the most important moments in cinema if you want to look at it as to how Darth Vader came to be. My hat's off to Ewan McGregor and to Hayden Christensen because a lot of the swordplay was done by them. It was not really stuntmen. It was not, you know, somebody, you know, removing their face CG and putting it on a, a, a fencer or a sword master or sword instructor. It was them. And that... I mean, the stamina that you need to swing, you know, these metal rods back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then the physical aspect that they were hitting each other and fighting each other, you know, I mean, my again, my hat's off to them. That saber duel was fantastic and it ended in the way that it needed to, which shows ultimately why Anakin needed the suit and how he ultimately becomes Darth Vader. The scene in which he becomes Darth Vader was almost perfect. Almost perfect. They show him laying on a table again he is just beaten, broken, and burnt, sliced up. And they show how they're kind of putting him together. 
and bringing the suit on him. And probably my number one part of all the Star Wars films is in this motion picture when Hayden Christensen is laying down and he sees the faceplate coming down. He looks, he's, you can tell he's kind of like panicking. He's anxious. For the first time, you get to see the interior of the helmet. The faceplate drops. Then you see them slide on the hood. And the last thing they do is that they activate the breathing module that gives him the When that happened in the theaters, people, their reaction was just something I will never forget. Because you now saw the birth of the greatest villain in the history of cinema. And for as good as it was, you know, there was a a hokey scene, in my opinion, where Darth Vader finds out what happened to... Princess Amidala, who is the mother of Luke and Leia. That ultimately she met her fate because of something he did. And he lets out this scream that I just thought was a bit much. Um, but it didn't take away... I would have done it differently. I would have done it a lot differently. Um, but it, it still didn't take away from how great that whole transition was. And as... He's being built as Darth Vader. Princess Amidala, who's played by Natalie Portman, is giving birth to the twins, which she she does not survive. She's crying. She's in pain. She's you know, it's a traumatic experience for her, and she doesn't survive the birth of the twins. So in her loss, Vader is born, and you know it's it's. The dynamic is very cool in that way. The film ends and you see how the twins are split. How Princess Leia ends up getting the title Princess Leia. And how Luke ends up on Tantooine, on the desert planet. And one of the last shots in the film is Darth Vader standing next to the Emperor, looking out at the Death Star being constructed. He crosses his arms and he just, it's kind of the moment where he comes to terms with the fact that Anakin Skywalker is dead and he is Darth Vader. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. That wraps up what is the prequel trilogy. I thoroughly enjoyed them. I find that The Phantom Menace was probably the weakest of the prequel trilogy. Uh, Again, only because it kind of lagged a little, the pacing was a little off, but on its own merits, the level of excitement that it bought because it was the first film in so many years and it was going to tell a new chapter of the Skywalker saga, you know, to me, it's it's my my cold pizza uh, analogy. You know, even cold pizza is good. And I I still have a love for The Phantom Menace because of how I felt when I went to the theaters and how I saw it and the fun that it was, even if it was imperfect in certain ways. And even if I didn't like how they got rid of one of my favorite characters, it's still an amazing film in this collection. Attack of the Clones, 
much better at pacing, a lot more of a fun film. But Revenge of the Sith is the strongest of the three. Uh, Again, some things I would have done a little different. Overall, it delivered. It delivered. And as now the prequel trilogy for a set of films to be one, two, three, four, five, six, it worked. And it worked very well. So now that those films were done, Lucas was happy with his product. He got to tell the story of the rise and fall of Anakin Skywalker. He told it successfully. He told it with, you know, visuals and and sound and, and, you know, that, that dramatic intergalactic (laughs) background that he loved so much. And it was great. It was absolutely great. So these films as a set of six were definitely held to a high regard and ultimately the chatter began for the final three films. Everybody's like, well, what about seven, eight, nine? What about seven, eight, nine? He announced it, I believe, in 2012 that he was going to go ahead and make the last three remaining films of the Skywalker saga. So this, these last three films are going to wrap up the existence, not the existence, excuse me. The, um, this, these next three films are going to wrap up the story of Luke Skywalker. Now, again, I spoke about this on the previous episode. There was an expanded universe that was created in 1985 or 86 after Return of the Jedi that has a lot of print. So there were a lot of books, there were comic books that continued the Skywalker story. And it told you what happened to Luke and to Leia and to Han and to Chewbacca and to Lando Calrissian and to Boba Fett. The story just kept going. So they had a wealth of story and characters to continue and to make a trilogy out of. And some of these stories were absolutely fantastic to such a degree that it tells you how Han Solo and Princess Leia had twins, a baby boy and a baby girl who were both force sensitive, who were very strong with the force. It tells you about new villains, new and exciting villains, It tells you how the Empire comes back stronger than ever. They come back under different guise. It it shows you how how they gain power again in the universe, little by little. It shows you how Luke meets someone, how Luke is now the strongest Jedi in the galaxy. He is what Yoda was, I believe, times 10. So Luke is a legit badass in these books. And he meets a woman who was hired to kill him. And she becomes his wife and he has a son. So think if all of this that I'm saying to you sounds cool so far, if you knew nothing of this and you're like, wait, what? Luke Skywalker had a son? Get out of here. You know, Han Solo and Princess Leia had twins. What? Yeah. And one of those twins is a boy named Jason, 
Jason Solo. He's strong with the force, but he also has the frailties of being a Skywalker. And he gives in to the dark side of the force, like his grandfather. And he becomes seduced by the dark side. And he becomes the most powerful Sith, like his grandfather. Now, I know all of this sounds familiar if you guys saw the last trilogy of films that came out. But the powers that be at Disney, who purchased 20th Century Fox and now own the rights to Star Wars, decided that with this vast universe of information that they had on books and print that continued the story from 1983 up until present day, that they weren't going to use it. That they weren't going to go by what the, they weren't going to go by the stories that were printed, but that they were going to pick and choose certain things to make the films. Next week's episode, I'm going to explain my absolute frustration and disappointment with the last trilogy of the Skywalker saga. Something that could have been monumental and could have outdone even the original trilogy fell absolutely flat. Mostly because of the middle film of that trilogy that slammed the entire story into a brick wall and then had to slowly reverse out of the pile of destruction that it caused upon impact. There is so much richness in the Star Wars universe that could have been used from the books and from the comics to shed light on what happened to Luke Skywalker, to explain the children of Han Solo and Princess Leia and why they were so powerful with the Force. But no. Disney decided they wanted to do something completely original, but picking and choosing things from the books, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Join me next week so we can discuss what my frustrations are with the last trilogy, despite how beautiful they look, despite the promise that they had given the source material that they could have worked from, the excitement of seeing these old characters come back to finalize this story and to round it out and to end it on a high note. And instead, we got the first film, which ran out of the gate incredibly strong. The second film, which was a hand grenade that nobody saw coming. And the third film that literally had to suffer because it had to put all the pieces together from the fallout of its predecessor. Star Wars The Force Awakens. Star Wars, The Last Jedi, and Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker will be covered next week 
on So Have You Seen. If you guys want me to touch on anything in particular in those films, drop me an email. So have you seen the number one at gmail.com. Hit me up on my Instagram handle. So have you seen. Feel free to follow me. Any tidbits, information regarding those trilogies or anything else you have in mind. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. And as always, I promise we'll touch on it. We'll discuss it. And we will have fun with it. But yeah, next week, y'all are going to know about my distaste, my strong distaste for The Last Jedi and why. Until then, thank you guys for joining me. As always, your precious time spent with me is greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, Again, comments criticisms, information, just wanted to say hi. All those messages are greatly appreciated. So drop me a line, stop by my Instagram, so have you seen. And till then, just keep on enjoying these films that we love and that we watch over and over and over again and that we obsess about. Like I always say, Take care of yourselves, wash your hands, wear your mask like all good superheroes do. And I will see you next Sunday. We have seven days. And I'm, oh, I cannot wait because, oh, The Last Jedi. That's that, that, that movie is probably my greatest nemesis, at least up until this point in my life. And I'm glad it's just that film. If there's ever a day that I could take a group of people with me into a theater to rewatch it, and I'll rewatch it as much as I loathe that film, I'll rewatch it just so you guys could have a laugh and see the look on my face throughout that two and a half hour disaster of a film that sabotaged, practically sabotaged the Star Wars universe. Guys, thank you so much. I'll see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Be safe. And I will see you then. Bye-bye.